So if you notice how many talent-based programs there are on television these days, there's shows like America's Got Talent, The Voice. Uh, there's shows like Dancing with the Stars or So You Think You Could Dance. One of my favorites is called Bring the Funny. So all these uh, stand-up comedians or some fun uh, comedic acts. It's really sweet. I mean, uh, there's things like Top Chef or American Ninja Warrior. You know, it's all these people who seem to have this talent and they're willing enough to put it on display. You know, as we watch, it's obvious there are those who really do have talent and there might be some who we're not so sure about, right? Um, one of my favorite moments in any of these shows is this surprise moment. It's like when this person who's very unpretentious comes up to the stage, they very humbly introduce themselves and what happens next shocks everybody. Uh, even sometimes it shocks themselves. Out of their mouth comes this voice that you had no idea could come out of a person like that, right? I mean, there's just this moment, this display of talent and everybody's just like blown away. I love those moments. You know, there is something that I think is unintentional, but it's very pervasive that it's kind of happening in our culture because of these television shows of talent based. There's an obvious reaction for most of us and that is like, that person has talent and I'm not so sure I have any talent. And so when we come to that kind of reality, we basically fall into two other realities. The first is we think, well, we're here just to watch the talent. Or we join Simon Cowell and we decide we're there to judge the talent. And that can just cause all kinds of havoc in our culture. But more importantly, I'm scared that it's kind of found its way into the church. And it impacts the way we think and, and even as we participate or not in the church. That's why we chose the next five weeks, the last week and the next four, to, to look at the book of First Peter. We're trying to discover what's God's purpose for the church. We've entitled this series, Let's Do This, because we want to learn from Peter what our identity is and also what our purpose is. Peter was one of Jesus' first followers, and he had a front row seat and a pretty big role to play in the start and in the carrying out of the church. And he writes to a bunch of Christ's followers that are scattered all over the Roman world due to persecution. And he wants them to be very, very clear on their identity. Last week, Andrew Bondurant kicked off the series and he, and he shared with us that we have a reality that's called saved, that we've been redeemed, we've been born again. And that's not something we did on our own. That's a privilege we received, though we didn't deserve it, from God. That he sent his son Jesus and his precious blood rescued us from this empty way of life that we were living to now having identity as somebody who's saved, somebody that's a child of God. We've been freed and delivered from our empty way of life. And, and that saved reality lays a great foundation for what I think Peter has to say in chapter 2. So I want you to grab a copy of the Bible, whether you have your own or you want to use the one in the pew back in front of you or under the chair at the West Campus, or you have a device with the Bible on it, just get in God's word and let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's begin just in verse 1 there. And he says this, therefore, we're going to stop right there because it's a, it's a literary cue. One of my Bible professors in college said, whenever you see a therefore, always ask the question, what is the therefore, therefore? Okay. It connects this idea of being saved 
in what Peter's just talked about to what he wants to talk about next. And so he says, therefore, because you're saved, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter wants this group of people who need to be reminded of their identity to not forget that they're saved. He wants them to be confident in their salvation. He wants them to understand their purpose of, in the suffering that they're going through. And so he, he gives some of these pictures of what it looks like, what our identity and our purpose, they all reflect purpose because we've been saved for something. And the first one is there in verse two. He says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you'll grow up in your salvation. Because you've been born again, Peter says, you should crave pure spiritual milk. You should grow in your salvation. God expects us to grow. And we're responsible to feed ourselves from the word of God. Paul tells Timothy that the word of God is useful for teaching and training that the man or woman of God would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. When we lived in Evansville the first time, we became parents for the first time. We had a bouncing baby girl. Her name's Jenna. She's almost 22 years old now, which, man, that just seems not possible. But Christy and I were so excited to be parents, but we were very aware we had no idea what we got ourselves into. I mean, no instruction manual provided, right? So we're kind of fumbling our way through this. And so there came a point in Jenna's first couple months where she moved from just drinking milk to taking baby foods. And so we went for a, a healthy baby checkup. I think she was seven or eight months old. And so the doctor just asked us some questions. How's it going? We're like, well, pretty good. Are you getting any sleep? No. I mean, that's the obvious answer, right? How's she doing with uh, eating? We're like, well, good. We've introduced some of the baby foods. The, she loved fruit. In fact, I kind of like the fruit. I would like still bite every once in a while. That stuff's pretty decent, you know? Uh, we all may end up back there one day. So uh, I thought, might as well get a, get a try in, right? She loved the orange vegetables, like carrots and sweet potatoes. That girl would put those jars down, but she did not like the green vegetables. And so the doctor very intuitively asked us, How's she doing with the baby foods? And we said, she likes fruit. How does she like the green vegetables? We're like, ugh, she hates them. It just all comes right back out. And he said, I can tell. We're like, what do you mean? He said, well, I just look at your daughter and she is orange all around her gills. Not green in the gills, not Oompa Loompa orange, but just like orange. She kind of had a glow about her because we just kept feeding her those orange vegetables, right? I think spiritually sometimes we all look a little milk heavy. We all look like we've kind of tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We, we've been saved, but that's kind of where it stops. We kind of just keep drinking the milk. But scripture is very clear that we should progress in our faith. We should mature in our faith. And it will require us to eat a little more than just Jesus saves. In fact, the person who wrote the Hebrews book, he, he challenges the believers of those days and saying, you got to move on from the milk and start eating meat. Listen what he says. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish between good and evil. Do you see the maturity written in those verses? 
So that we should move on from just being saved to, to understanding our fuller responsibility as people of God. That as children of God, we shouldn't stay young the whole time. We should mature. I mean, a 12-year-old who has no control of their bowels or is still sucking a bottle is obviously not maturing in a normal way, in a healthy way. Some of us might resemble that more than we should. So Peter encourages us, first of all, to, to be babes, but to mature and to grow. The second picture he gives us is he says that we're living stones being built into a spiritual temple. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning now in verse 4. He says this, as you come to him, meaning Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture, it says this, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, it's like the stone the builders rejected. That has become the cornerstone. And a stone that causes people to stumble, it's a rock that makes them fall. They stumble, Peter says, because they disobey the message which is also what they were destined for. Peter speaks of Jesus as being the living stone or the cornerstone. He's quoting Isaiah 28, verse 16. And he admonishes us to base our life off of Jesus. The cornerstone in a building determines the design and the orientation of the building. And Peter says that those who base their lives off Jesus, they will never be put to shame. But he says those who reject Jesus, their lives stumble and crumble and ultimately fall due to their disobedience. I think Peter was there that day. Jesus told a story about two builders. He said there's a builder, a, a wise builder who goes out to build a house and he builds it on the foundation of a rock. There's also a foolish builder. That builder goes out and builds his foundation on sand. And Jesus says the difference between the two is how they hear and respond to the word of God. The foolish builder, he, he listens to the word of God, but he doesn't accept it, he doesn't obey it. The wise builder, he hears the word of God and he puts it into practice. And Jesus says this next. He said, both houses got rained on, both houses got wind against it, storms that came against both houses. The difference was how they responded to the word of God. The wise builder's house stood firm. The foolish builder's house came with a great crash. Peter says, like Jesus, we're being built into a spiritual temple. He quotes Psalm 118, both here and also in a sermon he preached in Acts 4 when he was spoke to the religious leaders. And he says, it's not a good idea to reject Jesus or God. It didn't work out good for Israel. It's not going to work out for good for you and it won't for us either. Our identity and our purpose must come from Jesus. And so Peter continues to build upon this analogy. And he says, you're living stones being built into a spiritual temple. In the original language, that's a declarative statement, meaning it's not optional. Here's what I love. The person that Jesus called rock is now calling us rocks. 
And he sees that we're all in the same. Peter never intended to be the great pope of the church. He knew just like him, all of us play a role. We're all living stones being laid one next to another into a spiritual building where God's spirit lives, where it dwells. That happens both individually and collectively. When we're saved, God's spirit comes. He dwells in us. We're laid in one stone next to each other in this spiritual uh, temple, this spiritual place where God's spirit dwells among us. Paul continues this theme throughout the New Testament. Look what he says to the Corinthians. Don't you know that you yourself are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Look here what he says to the Ephesians. He says these words. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole buildings joined together and it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Our identity as saved people leads to our purpose. We grow in our faith. We base our life according to Jesus. We become a place where God's spirit dwells, where he dwells in and also works through, which leads us to the next picture that Peter shares. Verse five, listen to what Peter said again. He says, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a royal priesthood. He continues that theme in verse nine when he says these words, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In verse five, Peter says, you are a holy priesthood. In verse nine, he says, you are a royal priesthood. Our identity in Christ comes with a high responsibility and we should not take it lightly. Let me list for you what the actions or responsibilities were of a priest in the Old Testament that the New Testament affirms is still the expectation for you and me as priests. The first one is this that we should reflect the holiness of God. All throughout scripture, and Peter quotes it in chapter one, verse 15, it says this, be holy because God is holy. The role of the priest in the Old Testament was to be an example. They were to be set apart. They were to be sanctified. They were to be holy. So the rest of the Israelites would look at them and say, that's what it looks like to be like God. That's somebody we could follow as an example. Our role as priests today is not any different. We're there to be holy so that the rest of the world would see what it looks like to live a life that glorifies God. The second responsibility of priests is to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, gratefully, as New Testament believers or as part of the new covenant, we no longer have to hack the head off of a bull or a goat and pour the blood on an altar. Now, some of you are very relieved by that. Some of you would kind of get up for something like that. Like, hey, let me try that. That sounds like fun, right? But no longer do we have to spill the blood of goats and bulls. But yet, we're still asked to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. 
What are those modern day spiritual sacrifices? Well, the Bible's not um, silent when it comes to that. One of the first spiritual sacrifices we offer, Paul names in Romans 12, he says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship, Paul says. And so we offer our bodies as living sacrifices. Second of all, when we offer our money and possessions, Paul says in Philippians 4.18 that that is a sacrifice that pleases God. That we recognize what we have is not of our own doing, that God has blessed us and we return to him those blessings so he can use those to continue to make himself known. Our worship, what we say and what we sing about are expressions of spiritual sacrifices offered to God. Listen to what the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews chapter 13. He says these words. And it's in, um, let's see what verse, verse 15. It says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And also do not forget to do good and to share with others for such sacrifices please God. Our responsibility, when we sing and when we say God's word, we're speaking a spiritual sacrifice to God. Also, number three, our third responsibility as priest is to intercede for man before God. Now, let me be very clear. We only have one mediator, and that's Jesus. Jesus is the substitute between us and God. He, took our, he substituted himself for us and took away our sins. But that doesn't remove the responsibility we have as priests to be intercessors. Listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. He says these words. He says, I urge you then, first of all, that all petitions and prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good, and it pleases God, our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. He says, there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man, Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all of us. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time. And for this purpose, Paul says, I was appointed as a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. I, I am a true and faithful teacher to the Gentiles. Paul says, well, while Jesus is the mediator, we should intercede with others by prayer, by sharing the gospel, by being an example of godly living. That's one way we can intercede on God's behalf to man. But maybe the most important responsibility that all priests have it's to not just represent man to God, but to represent God to man. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in just a moment. While Peter doesn't specify the actions that he has in mind, virtually everything we do, we're exhorted to offer as spiritual sacrifices to God. Believers are all holy priests and we offer spiritual sacrifices. Listen to what Josh Wilson, the pastor at Resurrection Lutheran Church in North Bend, Oregon says. He says this, as a Christian, you are called to live a life of willing submission and service to others. In Christ, you've already been forgiven. You have life and salvation. Now you're called in your ongoing prayer and labor to serve one another in such a way that your fellow believers 
are encouraged and your neighbors may see your hope in Christ. Your acceptable spiritual sacrifice as one redeemed by Jesus may have a thousand and one ways of expressing itself according to your vocation and the needs of your neighbor. We can care for those we live and work alongside us. We love our neighbors for Jesus' sake and our daily vocation help and support him. Living in such a manner that our fellow believers are encouraged and strengthened and even those that are lost and dying may see a hope and grace in our daily dealings that they may wonder and ask about the hope we have, which so transforms our behavior. Priests in the Old Testament originally came from one specific family or lineage. But in Exodus 19, Moses says to all the people of Israel, you, plural, you are now a kingdom of priests. Isaiah quoted him as saying that later in the Old Testament. Now in in Tim or in Peter, Peter is quoting Exodus 19 and he's saying to all of us, we are now a kingdom of priests. We are saved to be priests. When the church began, it started with 12 men. These were the 12 original apostles who followed Jesus, each one of them personally invited by Jesus. Those 12 quickly became a group of 70 that included men and women. And that 70 quickly became 120. And by the time Jesus died, was resurrected and went to heaven, most scholars think that there were several hundred of people who would say that they were Christ followers. By the year 100 AD, it's estimated there were 25,000 people who would claim to be followers of Jesus. Guess how many there were just 200 years later in 300 AD? 25 million. From 25,000 to 25 million in just two years. You have to understand the context, what's going on in those 200 years. It's the moment that Peter's writing. He's writing to Christ's followers who are being persecuted for their faith. They've been scattered all over the known world. And as they go, they understand their identity, but they also understand their responsibility. They are sharing the good news, the gospel, anywhere and with anyone that they meet. And because of that, these untrained, ordinary men and women are taking the kingdom and moving it forward. And there is rapid multiplication happening. Something significant happened in 310 or 310 AD. The Roman emperor Constantine got saved himself. And immediately in 313, he made an edict of Milan and it, it made persecution of Christians illegal. But it also instituted the church as a state institution. And what he quickly did is he removed all the ordinary people who were doing ministry and he set up paid clergy. He let the paid professionals start teaching God's word. He let the paid professionals start doing all the ministry and the persecution stopped. And so did the rapid multiplication of the church. And I don't know if we've seen anything like it other than in modern day China. In modern day China, guess what? It's still illegal to be a Christ follower. You, it's not popular to be a Christ follower in China. In fact, the, the church in China is underground for the most part. There are no biblical institutions. There's a huge lack of Christian resources. And yet ordinary people like you and me are taking the gospel in the face of persecution and it's spreading like a wildfire, much like it did in the early church. 
1950, it was estimated that there were 2 million people who were Christ followers living in China. In 2010, 120 million. See how fast it's spreading? You see what is happening? Growth is occurring because those who follow Jesus understand their identity and their responsibility. They know they've been saved for a purpose. They're growing in their faith by feeding on God's word. They're basing their lives on Jesus, the cornerstone. They are living stones and spiritual temples where God's spirit is dwelling in them, but also working through them in a very powerful way as they offer themselves as holy priests offering spiritual sacrifices. Ordinary people like you and me recognizing their true identity and their true purpose. You see, the priesthood of believers, that's the way God intended the church to function. He never set up the church to be a bunch of paid professionals running around while everybody watched or judged. I think that's why Paul wrote these words in Ephesians chapter four. Listen how the message translates it. It says, out of the generosity of Christ, each of us, not just a few, but all of us, have been given his own gift. He handed out gifts of apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher to train Christ's followers in skilled servant work. Working within Christ's body, the church, until we are all moving rhythmically and easily with each other. Efficient and graceful in response to God's son. Fully mature adults, fully developed within and without. Fully alive like Christ. No prolonged infancies among us, please, will not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us all to grow up, to know the whole truth and to tell it in love, like Christ in everything. We take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us, nourishing us so that we will grow up healthy in God robust in love. We must recognize our identity and fulfill our responsibility. We've been saved for a purpose. I think that's what these last two pictures that Peter shows us speak to. Look at verse nine. We read it earlier, but listen to what Peter says again in verse nine. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Hear the words that Peter uses, chosen people, holy nation, people belonging to God. In the Old Testament, those words were used to describe just the people of Israel. God says, I've chosen you out of all the people on the face of the earth, You're my treasured possession. But in the New Testament, he says that about all of us, all those who have been saved. God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That includes everybody. What God said about Israel, he is now saying about us. For those of you like me who were the last kid picked on the playground, for those of you who've never felt worthy or welcome or wanted, God picks you. And he picks me and it's for a purpose. In verse 10, he says, once you were not a people, but now you're a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Being chosen doesn't mean we're better than everybody else. It's for a purpose. God told the people of Israel in Deuteronomy seven, I didn't choose you or you didn't choose me. I chose you. 
You're not that great. I chose you because I wanted to be faithful. I wanted to pour out my love on you. And that's what he says to us today. The most important role of a priest is to be saved and also to be called to declare God's glory to a world that so desperately needs it. That's why he created us. That's why he saved us, because he's called us to that purpose. Listen to what Ross and Oswald said in their Bible commentary. It says, God's goal in making a covenant with the people of Israel was not only an educational goal, but also for them to understand his identity and character. It is evident in the total context of Scripture that God does not merely intend for people to know his character. He also intends his people to share his character. God creates covenant with his people, both then and now, as a means to that end. As they obeyed the covenant, they would be acting in conformity to God's character. Conformity to God's character through obedience to his expressed will is a response to his grace of Passover and Exodus. Obedience doesn't earn admission into the saving presence of God. It never did, and it never will. Salvation is free, but it comes with a huge responsibility to be other, uh, to be holy, so that others will come to know God, to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that the world will see him and get to know him. Peter says, we are aliens and strangers declaring God's character. Because our citizenship is in heaven, we don't act like everybody else. We live distinct lives. We've been separated from the sinfulness and the corruption of this world so that we could be light to a dark world. Peter says, let them see your good deeds so that they could see God. That's not a contradiction of Jesus' teaching to do our spiritual practices in secret. You remember Jesus said that when you pray, go into your closet. When you fast, don't let other people see that you're fasting. When, when, when you pray, don't stand on the street corners for people to see. I don't think Peter's contradicting that, but what he's doing is illustrating Jesus' teaching that says you're the light of the world. You're a city on a hill. You don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. You put it on a stand. It gives light to everyone. Peter says, let your good deeds be bright light, displaying God's glory, and let people be drawn to that light. One of my favorite things to do as a young boy in the summer was collect lightning bugs. I love to get a jar. It was usually a pickle jar, smelled like pickles still, but like I'd clean it out. I would punch, get my dad's hammer and punch a bunch of holes in the lid. And then I'd spend the evening, once it got dark, collecting as many lightning bugs as I could and cramming them into that jar and putting the lid on it. And I can remember as a little boy putting that jar on my dresser and just laying in bed and watching the glow in my room. And sure enough, every time I did it, what happened in the morning, I got up and every lightning bug was dead on the bottom of that jar. I mean, like, you know, never a survivor. It taught me a really powerful lesson about lightning bugs. Lightning bugs weren't designed to live in a jar and light up a room. They were designed to light up the dark sky, the dark night that you'd be out in the backyard or in the woods and you could see those little flickers of light. It also taught me a really powerful picture of what the church is supposed to be. Not a bunch of people who gather in a jar with a lid on it and just let our light shine inside four walls. No, 
We were saved and we're called to be light into a world that so much needs those flickers of light because there's all kinds of darkness around. My friends, it's time for us to get out of the jar. What happens if we stay in the jar with the lid on? Spiritually, we just start to decay and I think it leads to spiritual death because we forget our identity and our purpose. We have to come to grips that we're united with Christ in salvation and then we're distributed on mission with Christ to share his love to the world. We can't ignore our responsibility. We've been saved and called to God's mission. We're not just saved from something. We are saved for something. And that something is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light so that the rest of the world would take notice and say, I wonder if he can do that for me. You see, my friends, that's the mission. That's what we've been called to. Crossroads. We are not here. We weren't created to watch the show. And I certainly know we weren't created to judge the show. There is no show here. We were created, saved, and called for a mission. And that mission is to declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so the world would see our good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. They'd be drawn to him and they come to know him. If you are called, or if you are saved, then you are called. And so let's do this together. I want to put back on the screen these five statements of identity and purpose and give you just a moment to look at those five and to feel maybe like never before the Holy Spirit bringing confidence into you who've been saved and to begin to understand your identity, but not to forget your purpose also. Look at those and just be encouraged and challenged who God says we are. Let's pray together. God, thank you for saving me. You know how much of a mess I've made of life because I didn't fulfill my intended purpose. God, I've, I've tried to go my own way. I've tried to think my own thoughts. I've tried to do it uh, on my own. And God, that's not how I was created. I was created for relationship with you. And because of my sin, you had to send your son, Jesus. If I was the only one you would have. And yet it's not just limited to me as you chose Israel and saved them. You have saved all of us through the blood of Christ. And when we accept you as our savior and Lord, it comes with a re real responsibility. And that is to be light bearers to a world that's so dark. God, that as you work in us and as you save us, that work should continue outside of us to those who also need to be saved. God, that's what you've called us to. And so, God, I pray like never before, we would feel more and more of your spirit working in us and see your spirit working through us as your holy priests, as your spiritual temple, as babies who are growing into mature, fully uh, devoted followers of Christ who are living on mission with you. And God, I pray the result of all that, of us realizing we're not just saved, but we're also called that the world would start to change one person at a time through acts of love, that the way that we live, the way that we laugh, the way that we love, the way that we serve, the way that we um, just interact with the world around us, God, they would get a taste of you. They'd see a clearer picture of you. And they'd be drawn to you. God, that's why you saved us. And that's what you've called us to. 
God, through your blood on the cross, shed for us, we need your mercy, but we also need your help. So we're asking for that through the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.